Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and as much as I'm kind of sick of hearing about the Tinder swindler, I know this is a story that just keeps developing in real time, even just a few weeks after the documentary dropped on Netflix. And there's a lot that can be discussed, a lot of parallels of online fraud and just scams in general and what went on in the documentary, as well as what the main character of the documentary is up to now in real time and how they're trying to profit from this infamy, while also claiming that they're completely innocent, which is kind of mind-boggling. But anyway, in last week's episode, I talked a little bit about inventing Anna and mentioned that I had not yet seen this documentary, The Tinder Swindler. I think I was probably the last person in the fraud prevention industry that hadn't yet, but because I heard about it from a lot of people. And actually, I just read that about over 50 million people have now watched this documentary in just two and a half or three weeks. So also speaks to its popularity. And there's just a lot of questions that people are asking about how he got away with it, how the victims still owe money and just all of that that I think I can answer from a fraud fighter's perspective and also provide an update on what he's doing in real life and some resources that if you would like to continue to dive down into this rabbit hole of where you can find some great information. So for those of you who have not yet listened to it, and I will not be surprised if there's a few of you, I thought that I would just provide a short overview of who Simon Leviev or the person claiming to be Simon Leviev is and what his scheme was. So according to the Netflix documentary, this was his scheme as follows. He would meet women on Tinder, lead them to believe he was a wealthy heir working in the dangerous diamond business and began a long-distance relationship with each of them. All the while, he was traveling for work, quote-unquote, and living lavishly on the dime of his previous target. After he'd been dating one woman for a while, he'd explain that he was in danger, send videos of his bodyguard bleeding, and tell his girlfriend that he needed to use a credit card in someone else's name so he couldn't be tracked. His girlfriends would send credit cards, took out loans and lines of credit, and even flew suitcases of withdrawn cash to him in his time of need. He promised he'd pay them back. Of course, they believed him. He was the Prince of Diamonds. He flew private everywhere, stayed at the fanciest hotels, and was always dripping in designer clothing. And he did pay them back with checks that bounced fake watches and bank transfers that never went through. Little did each woman know that all the wealth they bore witness to had been paid for by the woman who came before them. Women who were, by that time, alone, in debt, and desperate for answers. So essentially, a lot of, if we were to put terms on the scam, a lot of it was a combination of a romance scam and a Ponzi scheme. And the reason why it's a Ponzi scheme is because he was paying for his new target's 
lavish lifestyle for the first month of their whirlwind romance with the money from the previous woman that he had targeted. And I want to say up front that this documentary was very obviously just focused on a span of about two years of his life and on three of his victims. They make reference to the fact that there were more victims, that he had done this previously and spent two years in jail in Finland. And because he'd gotten caught, he had two years to think of how not to get caught and how to execute this scam even more so when he got out. There's also been some deep diving journalism over the last couple of weeks on who his real father is. It's not the heir to the Leviathan Diamond, the Leviathan Diamond uh, riches or their empire, as he claimed to everyone. But his father is actually a rabbi outside of Tel Aviv, and there are accusations of a money laundering scheme that did involve Simon, who his name. Previously, his birth name is Shimon uh, Hayat. I'm probably saying that wrong. I'm sure my listeners in Israel are face palming right now. One of my favorite listeners in Israel once called me a word butcher because I didn't say Zatar correctly. So, or Zatar correctly. So, <laughs> I'm just saying that up front. I'm trying my best. As someone that has a unique first name myself, I try uh, and, and I do try my best. Anyway, Shimon Hayat's father is a rabbi and or a lawyer. I, that was a little bit unclear in the article I read, but there were accusations from organization that there were fake checks being sent from Poland to this charity and then the charity was supposed to send a check back to them. And so they got the real check from the charity to deposit. Anyway, there are allegations that his birth father is also a scammer and someone who participates in these kind of things, which could explain how he knew so much about check fraud and wire transfer fraud, et cetera, as well as how to increase loan amounts and all of that. But that is, they're purely allegations. I don't know this for sure. However, this was covered on a recent podcast episode called The Making of a Swindler, which is produced by Netflix. And so I do know that they have to do a significant amount of research before publishing. But I just want to be clear that that part, I I personally did not verify, nor am I sure how I could. <laughs> anyway, there's just so many questions. And when I looked up on Reddit, one just curious what people wanted to know and, and how I could contribute to this conversation. Some of the biggest questions being asked is why did the women lose their money and why didn't Amex credit them? One person compared it you know, to the docu-series Inventing Anna and how one of Anna's targets, actually two of them, were paid back by Amex or Amex credited them. I think it's important to note that even though most credit card companies advertise zero fraud liability, that's usually within parameters. I mean, the first one that I'm most familiar with and that the majority of you listening to this are familiar with is the liability shift for e-commerce and online and mobile transactions. Those are not the bank's liability. So if your credit card is stolen and used online, that online merchant where your credit card was used is actually the one paying your bank back and your bank is the one then crediting you. So they get to look like the hero of the story 
when really they're pulling the money from the merchant who where your card was used. One of the questions I'm most frequently asked by fraud fighters and e-commerce leaders is for quality benchmarking data. It's almost impossible to measure the success and areas of opportunity for your team, processes, and the technology you use if you don't know how well others are performing. You need good data to make good decisions. And if your 2021 was another turbulent year, or even if it wasn't, Ravelin has the data you need on rising sales and rising fraud. Ravelin just released their 2021 survey on fraud trends and insights for merchants. This comprehensive survey was completed by over 1,700 global fraud professionals and provides insights into things like merchant perceptions of how fraud is changing and top business threats, tools, budgets, and methods for monitoring fraud, and wider environmental and industry factors, including COVID-19 and PSD2. This honestly is a very comprehensive survey. I was really impressed when I read through it, and I think you will too. All 72 pages have a lot of great information on how to do your job better, how to you know understand current threats and how others are fighting fraud. It's just, I really strongly believe that this is important to read, and I would be telling you that even if they weren't my sponsor right now. So if you're ready for it, go to ravelin.com forward slash fraudology or click the link to download your copy of the survey right now. The link is in the show notes. Similarly in person, it now these days, at least in the US, it depends on whether the card was entered with a chip or not. And if the merchant has that ability or not before deciding who owns the liability there. But a lot of people were zoning in on the fact that Amex contacted the cardholder Cecile in the uh, documentary several times because they saw her credit card being used much differently than it ever was before for very lavish, you know, hotels and restaurants and drivers, etc. And they would ask her if she was making those purchases. And she said that she was. And so because of that, I believe that that is why they're holding her responsible. Additionally, she committed fraud, even if she didn't know it, she did. Because at one point, Simon said, well, we need you to get a bigger limit on your credit card. So I will put you on my company as an employee and provide you with a pay stub. And the pay stub said that she made $94,000 a year. So by her providing that to Amex, as well as the other, I think there were seven or eight total creditors for lines of credit, often with predatory high interest rates because she needed the money quick for her boyfriend, that that was something that they wouldn't cover because she participated in it, even though she was conned. And that leads me to the next question that is probably asked the most and, and is natural to ask, shouldn't these women have known better? It's easy for those of us who aren't in the situation, especially when you're watching a documentary titled The Tinder Swindler, you know that there's a scam going on. You know that there's a con man who is targeting them. It is totally different when you're in that situation. And con men know this. They know how to build trust. They know how to make it seem like they have so much money, so why would they need it? Had he posted that he was just a regular guy and you flew for business, I don't think that there would have been as much opportunity to be able to take advantage of them. I've talked about 
how frustrated I get with victim blaming when it comes to scams and schemes and con men, et cetera. Because quite honestly, one person is trained very well. And whether they're trained by a professional or they just pick this up because they have sociopathic tendencies or know kind of how to manipulate people and learn social engineering themselves, either way, they've got a leg up. I made this comparison on LinkedIn last week and a few people reached out and said they really appreciated it where just taking, I think I, I think I posted it on Super Bowl Sunday. So I was thinking about sports and just saying how you can't blame someone for being a victim of a con because it's similar to an everyday person playing a sport against a professional athlete and then blaming that everyday person for losing. It's very similar. And I understand that in hindsight, like I said, you know, in hindsight, watching a documentary, you know the premise. And so you can pick up the signs very well. But think about when you've been in a new relationship. And there's actually scientific studies on this that I admittedly didn't look up before recording this. But my mom used to call it love stupid. But basically, in the first three months of dating someone, you're swooped up. You're in that honeymoon phase. Everything's perfect. You believe everything they say because you don't have a reason not to. And your guard is down. That is a big reason why romance scams work so well, right? You're trusting someone. You feel like they're being honest and vulnerable with you because you're being honest and vulnerable with them. So you have no reason to second guess what they're saying. And in this case, there were you know, people did do Google searches, et cetera. But there's a lot that can be done to manipulate search engine optimization to make sure that the person who's Googling you sees what you want them to see. If you put enough effort into it, you can. Also, because he changed his last name to Leviev, looking up the Leviev family, you see that there is a legitimate Leviev diamond business out of Israel. So that is why... That's why they they thought, well, I did Google him and saw who he's associated with. And so, of course, he has this money, right? It was the story he wanted them to believe. And as they were dating, that's when he started to kind of drip in this information that he had enemies, that the diamond business was a dangerous one, which there's a lot of evidence for that, and that he had people that were after him. In some cases, he said that he had previously been in an arms dealer for the Israeli government. And so he had enemies from that as well in the Middle East, et cetera. So he had kind of dripped that out. And then he sends this video or this or pic and or pictures of his bodyguard, Peter, having blood dripping from his head and says he was attacked and we need to go on the run. And there's just no reason for them not to believe him. Now, then he asks for money because it needs to be untraced. It needs to be in someone else's name so that his enemies can't find him. I'm using quotation marks, but I know you can't see this. <laughs> and so he's building the story, right? And it makes sense where, oh my gosh, I need money. Now, granted, if you have a minute to second guess things, you can go, well, why didn't he call his dad for money? But I think that when I do believe he mentioned that, that like he couldn't because then they would know they'd be able to trace his dad's money, which, again, in hindsight, is crazy. But these women thought that they were in a relationship with him. They didn't know that he was doing this to several other women. And they felt like, well, I mean, this person who I care about a lot is in trouble. I'll do anything. 
And he coached them on how to call Amex or reply to Amex's questions about why are you in this country or that country. He coached them on how to get a higher limit on their loans. He coached them on how to fake documents to be able to get that money. He made suggestions and all of that. But in a way, at that point, he was still their boyfriend and they cared about him and they wanted him to be safe and they were worried that he was in imminent danger. And so I just think, I think it's really hard for us to say that it's all their fault. And I was really frustrated, but not surprised that there's so many comments like that on Reddit. There were a few people that mentioned some things in the comments that I thought were interesting. You know, one is that he was targeting women in, in Nordic countries. And there were people saying that often in Nordic countries, there's not a lot of crime. There's not a lot of con men. There's not a lot of liars. A lot of people leave their front doors unlocked and their cars unlocked. So they're more trusting. Also, he didn't go for very wealthy women. He went for middle class, you know, professional women, but not ones that would be impressed by his wealth and opulence and wouldn't ask questions, right? He made sure that it was women who had never been on a private plane before. So they don't know what it's like to be on a private plane legitimately or whatever the circumstance is, right? He was very careful about who he targeted. He was premeditated in that. I thought that was an interesting point and one worth sharing where if somebody or also if he's targeting people who already have private planes, that's lost on them. Now, there are people who are saying, well, clearly these women were gold diggers because they really were attracted to that. Well, I mean, maybe, but we can't fault them for that. They believed what he wanted them to believe. And he knew that a lot of times when people see someone with money, they think, well, they would never need money. So of course he's going to pay me back. And that really was, in my mind, the purpose of him building up that opulent life. One was to attract people to be interested in him, but the other was for them to feel safe that he's not in it for my money because he has his own money. I mean, there's a situation in my personal life where a friend of mine has a family member that is doing some shady stuff, but that family member has always been wealthy. And so my friend says, well, <laughs> there's no way that they're doing something shady because they have all this money. They've got boats, they've got vacation homes, they've got this, they've got that. So they wouldn't be stealing from our family trust or the family business, because why would they? They have no reason to. Well, it's the same way for in this case, right, with Simon Levayev, where he wanted them to think, well, there's no way he'd be trying to target me for money. I don't have anything compared to him. And of course, he's good for it. Of course, he'll pay me back. And in several cases, he did. But it was through bad checks. It was through wire transfers that never got through. In one case, it was through he had a woman fly to him in another country to give her his watch to pawn. And he said it was easily worth over 100,000 euro and it was fake, you know, just in, in all those cases. But by that point, they'd already lent the money and then his personality shifted. And that also happens, right? When people start to say, hey, wait, you said you'd pay me back when they're not understanding and they just start blaming you and basically gaslighting another sign. I spoke with a woman who was a victim of a romance scam a few years ago. And in this case, she was married to the guy for a long time and he was siphoning off her money and she never knew it. And he would make charges on her car. He basically created merchant accounts with Payfax. So an example of a Payfax is Stripe or Square or things like that. 
I'm not saying that's who he created the accounts with. There are several, but those are just an example. And he would name the company something similar to stores that she shopped in regularly in her neighborhood so that when she looked at her credit card statement, she was like, oh, I must have spent $200 at that grocery store because I do it all the time. And this happened for years. He, he had several other scams and things. But she made really good money in the business that she was in, and he just scammed her for everything she had. And it was heartbreaking to her. And it was almost impossible for her to trace all the money and everything. And I got her in touch with a really amazing forensic accountant and fraud investigator who helped her on that. But in her case, just as these other women, they trusted them. There's another level. It's a level of relationship. Imagine your partner doing this to you. Like if, if my husband asked me for take out a loan for something, I probably would. Now granted, we've been together 16 years. So that's a little bit different. But even when we were first dating, well, I didn't, I literally didn't have anything, but you know, just in those first few months of dating, I just think that that often gets overlooked. And that's why romance scams work because you're not just, it's not just somebody calling you out of the blue and asking you for money. It's someone who you think you're in a long-term relationship with that is also honest and truthful with you. But it's, we're just, we're not in a reasonable frame of mind is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so with all those established stories, that's why it was quote unquote easy to fall for. Not really, but why I don't blame the victims, I blame him. Another question was, was the bodyguard in on it? And this came out just very recently this week that the bodyguard is now suing Netflix because he is portrayed as being an accomplice to these scams and he claims that he wasn't in on it. I did read that there are a lot of private for hire bodyguards who have no idea who they're working for. So it's possible he didn't know about it, but it was because of him getting hurt. But it turned out he was sending, Simon was sending the same videos and the same pictures to each woman as if it had happened just then. So Clearly, he knew what he was doing, but I don't know if the bodyguard did. So Simon said that he was involved in arms dealing for the Israeli government before working for his father's business, in quotation marks, and made enemies with scary people, which is why he hired Peter. Peter is of Eastern European descent, definitely looks like a bodyguard, has lots of tattoos. And so also Peter would call on speaker to Simon about security threats to give Simon cover to leave the country, often for another woman when he was with one woman. So he'd be with woman A and then he'd need to go run off to woman B. And so Peter would call and say, ah, oh, there's a security threat. And that would give him cover to leave as well as cover that his enemies were after him. So it's hard to know if Peter knew what he was doing or he was just doing what his boss told him or whatever. He also says that Simon owes him a lot of money. There was a woman portrayed or that was shown in the video a little bit that had a daughter with her. And it turned out that that was Simon's child. And she is also one of Simon's victims. But she wrote on the plane at that point because she was hoping to get money from him for child support. So there were a cast of supporting actors within his scam and story, but it's hard to know if they were in on it or if they were also just playing a part and they, they didn't know what his endgame was. And that's very possible. But now we get to the biggest question that a lot of people are asking now, and that is, has Simon Levi have changed? And again, his real name is Shimon Hayat. 
And I can safely say, I don't think so. And here are the reasons why. I have worked with former cyber criminals before. I had a podcast with one for two years. So I'm familiar with that, with just a lot of questions that people ask, as well as I was putting my reputation on the line. And so I made sure that I vetted him a lot. And I became clear on what remorse and what just redemption looks like. And I truly, to this day, believe that Brett Johnson and Alexander Hall and others that I have promoted on this podcast or others are legitimate in wanting to help companies prevent fraud attacks from people like them. I also have seen what remorse and regret looks like, and Simon does not reflect those. But especially because he launched on this video chat app called Cameo last week, I think on Thursday or Friday. Maybe it was Wednesday, actually. But anyway, he's offering short personalized video messages for people for $200 USD, businesses for $2,000 USD. And he has made over $30,000 in just three days on Cameo. And I've seen Cameo come out and say that they believe that the decision should be in the hands of the consumer on whether they're going to support this man or not. However, I think that there are a lot of people that are caught up in the novelty of it. I don't think this is going to be a long-term thing. I think people have very short attention spans. I watched some of his cameo videos because they provide samples when you want to possibly purchase a video. And in every single one of them, he worked in the line, my enemies are after me, or your boyfriend says his enemies are after him. Ha ha ha. And I have a really hard time with that. That's not remorse. That's not regret. In fact, that's profiting off of his infamy. And I find it really interesting that at the same time he's doing all these cameo videos, he's also providing a couple of interviews. I think the first one is with Inside Edition. I'm sure he'll do more because I think some of these outlets pay for interviews where he's saying he's completely innocent and that he was just a man that wanted to meet women on Tinder and it's a big misunderstanding and that he didn't con them. So it just feels like a lot of his story isn't adding up. If you're truly innocent, if you or if you are regretful or remorseful, you wouldn't be doing anything you could to make money legitimately, knowing that you probably can't run this current scam now because it's international. The documentary was seen internationally. But he also doesn't say anywhere that the profits are going to his victims who still owe hundreds of thousands of dollars to creditors, to Amex and others, or maybe to their therapy, like, can you donate that? So that as well as he has a current girlfriend who says he's innocent and all of this. A lot of people are also asking why he hasn't been arrested for the crimes that were portrayed in the Netflix documentary. And from what I can tell, it's because he hasn't left Israel and that they're not extraditing him. I don't know if there have been charges to extradite him to, but that's why he's currently in Israel and the countries where the crimes were committed are outside of Israel. So I don't know a lot about geopolitical things, but uh, I do know that he has mentioned to several people that he's hoping to move to the U.S. and host a dating show and that he has a talent manager now and a PR manager and all this. And that's just not that's not the M.O. of somebody who has remorse or regret. And in my perspective, we should only be paying former criminals if they're providing valuable information to prevent future crime. 
that to me is the only time. So I will not be purchasing the cameo, nor do I, am I advising any of my, the vendors that I work with on marketing and sales advisory to purchase this for $2,000. I think that people who are in fraud prevention would not find it humorous. But anyway, also there's another concern I have about him doing these cameo videos. In one of the videos I watched, he was reading what the person who ordered the video had said about the person the video was for. And he said something to the effect of, it says here that you are a beautiful, successful, independent woman. And he just kind of paused as if he was thinking in his head, oh, she'd be a good target. And I know that Cameo doesn't provide full credit card numbers to the people providing the videos and all of that. But there's enough information given about some of the recipients of these videos that he could easily or anyone could easily look them up and target them for a scam, especially if they think that they have money. I and mean, that's a real thing, right? I would really caution anyone who's purchasing these cameo videos not to divulge any personal information, even your email address, right? I'd be very curious. What are the identifiers that cameo is providing to their creators? to create the videos. It's, I don't know, I mean, I guess I could probably sign up for it, but I thought as big of a deal as, as anyone else. But then again, I think they have everyone on there. So maybe because I'm a podcast, I could sign up just, I would literally just sign up just to find out what information the creators get, not because I would want to provide videos. Let's be clear. <laughs> uh, but I think really at the end of the day, we need to stop feeding the trolls. We need to stop feeding the scammers. And I'm conflicted on this. I said this on last week's episode. I enjoy a good scam documentary or a good, you know, fraud docu-series just like the next person. In fact, I probably enjoy them more. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that, but then I'm conflicted because we're giving notoriety, right? And I do think that there is within the entertainment value, there is some education and providing people with some red flags. And so hopefully... If your friend or if yourself is dating someone new and there start to be some of these over-the-top love bombing and over-the-top expenses and staying at this hotel and that hotel and private deaths, et cetera, there should be some questions asked. For that, I think it's healthy and I think it's good to share those stories. But on the flip side, when we're making stars out of them and they're able to now profit off of this, it just, it doesn't feel right. And it also feels like it's now giving other people a plan B. Right. I mean, I know, at least from working with Brett for a few years, that there were several criminals that would reach out to him and say, hey, how have you done it? How have you made money legitimately? I want to get out of this life. What they didn't realize is that there were over two years after he got out of prison where he couldn't get a job even at McDonald's because it involved credit cards and computers. And that I spoke with him for over six months before hiring him to speak at the first conference that he spoke at. And we didn't pay him that much. We paid him very minimal amount. So, and I was very conscious about who I introduced him to and, and all of that. I knew that people would trust him because he was there at this conference that I was a part of. And so I talked to his parole officer. I talked to the FBI. I talked to so many people to make sure that, you know, we could trust him. And, and I don't regret that. I still trust him that he has changed his life. But it's not easy. And a lot of times when cyber criminals would realize it wasn't easy and there's not a whole bunch of companies just lining up to hire them to do penetration testing or other, whether it's fraud penetration testing or cyber pen testing, that they're 
not that they just think that people are lining up to hire their skills and that's not the case. And so in a lot of cases, they would try and they would try to be legitimate. They'd also be committing crime at the same time. And I see this parallel where if there is some guy being like Dirty John or like the Tinder Swindler or whatever these cutesy names that that's a whole other topic from last week's podcast, but whatever they're doing, they can look at this and say, well, I mean, if I get caught, I can just go on Cameo or I can just get a manager or look, this guy's doing fine. I don't think it's going to last. I don't think he's going to have this much fame or any money-making opportunities for long. I think these things fade, but it's setting a precedent and it's showing them that crime does pay. And by the way, he's not in prison, right? And so they're like, oh, there's no consequences, very little consequences. He spent five months in prison in Israel for something he had done back in 2011, I believe. But that's it, right? So I think we need to be conscious of who's looking and who's learning about this. So just on the note of fraud-related TV shows, there are a couple coming up again. So one is on Elizabeth Holmes, and that's going to be on Hulu in March. And that is similar. I mean, in all of these cases, they're building credibility and then getting introductions from people who have credibility with other people and vice versa. And they just build this persona and have you believe what they want you to believe. Also, there's a new documentary coming on Netflix. Netflix is really on a roll with fraud. I, I know that they've been talking to other people about buying their stories as well. I mentioned the couple from the Bitfinex hack that Netflix bought the rights to their story the day after they were arrested, in part because the wife was a writer for Forbes and Inc. magazine by day and a very horrible rapper, like really no skill at rapping by night or at other times. And so it's obviously a fascinating story there. But also on Netflix is coming up the vegan Bernie Madoff and a Ponzi scheme around a chef that had a vegan raw empire in New York and ended up money laundering and, and being a part of a Ponzi scheme. I'm not entirely sure if she was the really the mastermind or not. Both of the trailers are out for those. So if you are interested, that's uh, definitely something that you can check out. But in the meantime, I appreciate you listening to this. As always, if you have any follow-up questions about the Tinder Swindler, I am happy to answer them. But I will, I'm hoping and planning to be back uh, talking about fraud targeting online companies on next week's podcast. We have a great interview coming up on Tuesday's episode and then another solo episode next week. And if you didn't listen to the interview with Diana from this past Tuesday, I highly recommend it. This is all about resellers targeting e-commerce companies with purchasing bots and sneaker bots. And it's something that Diana knows so much about because she's the head of fraud for JD Sports North America, also known as Finish Line. With that, I will talk to you soon. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.